0: Elizabeth Bachman and her Strategic Speaking for Results program trains business professionals on how to make great presentations.
1: And to use that as a tool. So in my, in my mind, speaking is a tool. It's a really cool tool. It's a fun tool. But I focus on how do you use speaking to get a result.
0: Elizabeth wasn't always a trainer and spent 30 years in the international opera world. 11 of those operating a summer opera company in the Austrian Alps. She remembers her first summer.
1: Isn't it going to be cool? I'm going to be up in the mountains. I'm making music in the mountains for the summer. How fabulous. And oh, the teeny weeny little detail was that I had to raise $100,000 to launch it, which I can assure you was not in my bank account already. I had to raise it. And to do that, I learned how to speak to get a result. Basically, for me, it was to get people to open their wallets.
0: On this episode of Run It Like a Girl, Elizabeth Bachman talks about the importance of knowing your audience and how women who are new to management can lead effectively. Elizabeth also talks about the glass ceilings she faced in the opera industry, particularly losing job opportunities to less qualified candidates. Usually, men.
1: I didn't realize until later, until the work I'm doing now with corporate women, especially, I didn't realize that I was marketing myself wrong. I wasn't marketing myself to the people who actually made the decisions. So, being really well known in the industry and being beloved by my peers wasn't enough because they weren't the people who were hiring
0: me. Elizabeth Bachman. On this episode of Run It Like a Girl.
1: I'm pretty excited
2: this afternoon because I'm sitting down to do a podcast recording and I'm so thrilled to have Elizabeth Bachman, Strategic Speaking for Results, as a guest with us today. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me for an episode.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. I'm so excited to be on your podcast.
2: Oh, I can't wait to get into this conversation, but I think I'm going to change my first question already, which is really Strategic Speaking for Results. What is that?
1: Well, I I tend to default to what kind of result do you want to get through speaking? After spending my whole life presenting, I was up on stage. I've been an actor and a director and a producer, and now I train people in. Now I train people in business to make great presentations and to use that as a tool. So in my in my mind, speaking is a tool. It's a really cool tool. It's a fun tool. But I focus on how do you use speaking to get a result? So I'm always about if you're going to do a presentation where it's whether it's inside a meeting or it's to a group, if it's outside your company, uh, there's some result that you want. If you start from there and work backwards, that's the strategic part so that you are getting up and delivering some value and actually moving people to take an action that's going to be beneficial to them. You know, I, I think that's awesome. And I think it's so interesting because
2: uh, and imagine it doesn't matter if you're presenting to three people or 3000 people um we've all been or just one
1: or just one who has the power to authorize
2: because we've all been in meetings where you don't really understand why you're there at the end and i'm sure that the person speaking hasn't actually got what they needed out of the meeting hasn't been able to get that influence or hasn't been able to uh to change someone's mindset or whatever their objective was so i like how you how how you talked about strategic speaking for results um so interesting you also mentioned uh that you were an actor and a director and and you were an opera director for many many years
1: correct oh i spent 30 years in the international opera world yes
2: that's fascinating to me and i'd love to know how did you come to the decision to leave directing operas and
1: focus on this well let me start back a little further um now that i look back i can see that i've been dedicated to the art of great communication ever since i first walked on stage at the age of five and i afterwards i heard my mom say that i was the best goddamn bunny rabbit ever to grace the stage Uh of the hillside (laughs) school and i was hooked i said okay this is what i want to do that got me all excited uh significance is one of the basic human needs. And that's certainly one that I like. I liked the applause. It's true. It was, and then I also liked languages. I liked travel. So opera combines theater, music, languages, and travel, which are the four big, uh, big loves of my life and has taken me to some really interesting places to work with some really wonderful people. In 2005, I started a summer opera company. We were mostly focused on training young singers. Uh, It was based in the Austrian Alps called the Tyrolean Opera Program or Top Opera for short. And We were working with young singers, both German-speaking and English-speaking. So it was also an international exchange thing, although I didn't broadcast that. That was one of the things that they figured out later. (laughs) And I did that for 11 years. I learned to speak to get people to to get a result when I had to raise the money for it. Because I decided I was going to do this. I told everybody, all right. I'm creating this program. Isn't it going to be cool? I'm going to be up in the mountains. I'm making music in the mountains for the summer. How fabulous. And oh, the teeny weeny little detail was that I had to raise a hundred thousand dollars to launch it, which I can assure you was not in my bank account already. Mm -hmm. I had to raise it. And to do that, I learned how to speak to get a result. Basically, for me, it was to get people to open their wallets. And frankly, when I started, I was pretty terrible. (laughs) I was terrified and terrible. What saved me was meeting a, a speaker trainer who was a professional training people in the art of public speaking. And I'd always sort of made it up So I went before. And she called me up the next day and said, you know, there's some things you can do to to improve your results. I was so excited because there, my goodness, there were tools. There was a way you could do this. I didn't have to figure it out from scratch. And using what she taught me, I was able to raise that $100,000 and the 50 plus thousand dollars every year afterwards to run it again, to run it for 11 years. The turning point came in the last couple of years when I realized I had been doing the same repertoire for a very long time. I was, I was, I was burning, basically I burned out. I was getting to the point where I thought if I don't stop now, I will lose the ability to be moved by the music. Hmm. And that's the most important thing. And at that point, I was also already working with professional speakers, training professional speakers, where instead of the same 20 arias over and over again, I was helping people talk about soil microbes and why they matter and how to raise money for your nonprofit, how why you should be paying attention to me in the office. And so ultimately, I decided it was time to close the opera company after 11 years and move full-time to training business presenters.
2: Wow. That's, uh, that's so interesting. And, um, and so now, so now that's kind of what you're doing, but you also, one of your passions is around women and helping women to be heard. So, um, why, what drives your passion about helping women to be heard?
1: some of it was my own experience with glass ceilings i had spent i was one of the early female directors i wasn't i wasn't in the very first wave where it was really rare i was in the wave where it was uncommon to have a woman directing and i had to work very hard to be taken seriously Not so much about the singers, because the singers understood, but often by, say, the stagehands or the board to be taken seriously. And The other piece of it was I wanted to run an opera company. Ultimately, the Tyrolean Opera Company, I created it and ran it because no one would give me another opera company (laughs) to run, so I made one, but... I kept applying to run to be the artistic director or general director for a company. I was frequently on the short list over and over for about four years. I would be on the short list, but I would see the job go to someone else, often a man who was not as uh, not as qualified as I was. I didn't realize until later. Until the work I'm doing now with corporate women, especially, I didn't realize that I was marketing myself wrong. I wasn't marketing myself to the people who actually made the decisions. So being really well known in the industry and being beloved by my peers wasn't enough because they weren't the people who were hiring me. Hmm. I should have been marketing myself to the board. And I didn't realize that until many years later. <clears throat> that also and for a nonprofit if you if you're on the board of a nonprofit you are always living in scarcity mode you know it's you're always saying how are we going to pay the bills uh-huh. and especially in the 90s when people there's an unconscious bias that when it comes to money People are going to trust a man before they trust a woman. This is all stuff I figured out later in retrospect in the work that I'm doing now and the people I'm working with now where I'm now helping women step forward and claim their value. Basically, women who have a seat at the table but still aren't being listened to. I'm now teaching the work that I wish I had known back in the 90s I might still be running an opera company now, but I didn't know it at that time. Having made those painful mistakes myself, I now understand where i where I misunderstood and where it was about fifty percent unconscious bias on the point on the part of the people who weren't listening to me, mm-hmm. and the other fifty percent was how I was sabotaging myself. And okay. so that's the main thing I do now is I work with women who are high level, uh, usually in tech and law, women who've gotten to a certain point through skill and ability, but from, from senior director to vice president or CEO, that's politics. That's a whole different skill set. And that's the, that's the problem I solve.
2: That's, that's fascinating. And I mean, and it's so true what you're saying, because there's so many women out there that think I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm going to do a good job and I'm going to be recognized for it. And I'm going to make it to the top because my work's going to speak for itself. And like you just said, that can take you so far. And then that's it. That's it. And everything else comes into play. And you have to be putting your hand up. You have to
1: be marketing yourself. I was so frustrated when I realized, I say, but wait a minute, but just doing a really good job isn't enough? That's no fair. Where did that happen? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the things that I spent, I wasted a lot of time. I wasted a very long time waiting to be recognized for the excellence of my work rather than being proactive and marketing myself. Yeah. So my hope is that the people I work with don't waste as much time as I did.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that kind of leads to the next question, you know, and I think it happens as, as children. Little girls are seen as bossy and boys are seen as leaders a lot of the time, and I think that kind of follows you up. If you have a, a woman leader, the words that are used to describe them are not typically the same words that you use to describe a male leader. So I'd love to know from your perspective, how can women who are new to management
1: effectively lead? You have to be grounded in your own worth. So let's start about outside perception. I call it the tightrope between being bossy and respected. Being, being strong and standing in your own power is, uh, needs to be worth it. And you need to stand for that without putting anybody down. Sometimes people will have a knee-jerk reaction to to that kind of strength and be threatened by it. That's something that you cannot really affect until you're in the room. So that's something that that takes some negotiating. My feeling is any sort of presentation – When you're presenting yourself, especially, or you're presenting an idea that you want people to take action on, rule number one is it's about the listener. Who's listening? The other piece, so the other piece of being considered bossy instead of respected, is also the way that women sabotage themselves. There are many ways of doing that. A lot of it is learned behavior. If you're if you're in a meeting, you say, "Excuse me, but um can I speak? I'm sorry, maybe I have an idea," instead of just stating your idea. That's part of it. Another big part of it is making sure that you have allies. Especially for women, it's important to have people around you who will say, yes, go ahead. You can do this in a meeting. If you're being talked over in a meeting, make sure that you have allies in the meeting. Uh, If you're running the meeting, then you you can stop them and say, thank you, but I'm not finished. I think of Kamala Harris in one of the early... Democratic debates, who was being interrupted and she turned around and said, excuse me, I'm speaking. Good for her. She had to learn that, I guarantee. Uh, so being, and then being concise. That's the other big thing is that I'd like to think of the world as divided between single focused people and multi-focused people. And the single focus people are the people who focus on one thing at a time. They move forward. They're fast. They're focused on a target. And Western business is built around that. It is a traditional masculine mode, although plenty of women get into focus. When I'm in single focus mode, it's really hard to get my attention because I'm focused on what I'm doing multi people are the people who notice a lot of things. The problem comes when a multi person, which is sort of the traditional feminine mode, although I know plenty of men who are multi-focused, the multi multi-focus people will notice things that the single-focus people won't notice. But if you don't say it in a way that a single-focus person can hear you, they won't get it. They won't, they truly, really, truly won't hear you because actually they can, they really only can hear one thing at a time. So it won't matter. So, what you say. uh, so it's the way you are mm-hmm. speaking. You're still saying the same thing, but you're saying it in a way that your listener can hear it.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's so interesting. And so how do people, um, does it matter then? So when, how you're teaching people to speak kind of with purpose or strategic speaking, it doesn't matter what kind of listener you have. What do you say about kind of like knowing your audience? What Where does that come into play with how you deliver messages?
1: That's where speaking within a company, speaking within an organization, you have a great advantage because you know who you're talking to. The important part is to understand who they are and how do they listen? Women often will talk to each other in conversations that range around all along all sorts of topics, and you jump around. Men tend to talk about one thing at a time, and so if a woman comes in and she says, "Well, we need to do this, and we need to do this. We got this, and this, and this." And oh, you know, I was just thinking, da 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 da. The, multi, the single focus per- person is not going to hear them at all. If you're aware of that, the best way to approach that is to make an appointment. If you assume that the single focus person is, is always focused on something, so no matter what, it, you are always interrupting Not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just you are interrupting. Make an appointment. If you say, uh, I need 20 minutes of your time to solve this problem, or I need to talk for half an hour, when would be good? And then wait. Don't start talking about it. Be quiet until it's time to talk. Then the great part is you have that single focus person's full attention. That's very good. The thing that single focus people particularly need to know about multi-focus people is that multifocus people need to know that they've been heard. Hmm. They need acknowledgement. And what happens is if a multi if a single focus person doesn't actually acknowledge the multifocus person, then the multi let's say the woman is hurt and upset they take it person women tend to take things personally uh, whereas to a man it's often as they said in you've got Mail, it's not personal it's just business uh-huh. yep. but for women it tends to be personal they think it's about them instead of instead of this is just not a good time so being aware of all those dynamics is so important because then you can see what's happening you can understand what's going on and you can approach somebody in a way that they're truly likely to hear.
2: That's awesome. That's, uh, that's, so, that's so interesting. And so this kind of brings us to our last question. You've talked a bit about kind of some of the lessons you wish you had have learned earlier on. But I'd love to know then if you could go back in time to when you did first start out in your career and have a conversation with yourself, what type of advice would
1: you give? I would have, well, the first advice is always ask for more money. I I was the good girl and I often would go in and say, how much can you pay me instead of this is what I'm worth. Another place where I wasted years thinking that I would be recognized for the good work that I did instead of asking for what I was worth. That took me many years to learn how to do that. Uh, and secondly, If I had known about the single focus versus multi-focus thing earlier, it would have helped me a lot as a boss to understand that I needed, I wasn't, when I first, when I was first a boss, when I was first a manager, I would make suggestions or hints rather than giving specific instructions I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought I wasn't supposed to be too demanding until I realized, and it was my staff that taught me this, until I realized that they were so much happier if they got clear direction from me Mm -hmm. instead of me talking around things. Uh, And I became a way better boss once I learned how to do that. Learning when to give clear instructions, when to ask if I, wa- if I wasn't clear, instead of pretending that I already knew and going on and trying to do it and then not doing it right. Asking for help. I wish I had learned that earlier. But mostly, especially, it was learning to ask for money much earlier.
2: I think, uh, I think a lot of people have that, that issue. Um, you know, I don't even know if my, uh, on my first job, I knew that negotiation was a thing. They just told me what mm-hmm. my salary was and away I went. I don't, I don't like it never even crossed my mind that you could actually negotiate based on what you believe your worth is. So I think that's fantastic advice and, and something everybody should do no matter what situation in life is, is learn to negotiate and learn your worth. Um, So that kind of brings us to the end of our formal questions. And then we have this extra part, which is to really provide our listeners with, you know, something to read or something to listen to and just hear a little bit about you. So I'm going to ask you three questions and uh, looking forward to your answers. The first one is, what's your favorite podcast or source of information?
1: I tend to listen to national public radio. I get my news that way and because so much of my life is around listening there are a couple of political podcasts i listen to and then most of the time if i'm listening to podcasts i'm listening to the podcasts that have to do with people i'm going to be interviewing so i'm it's usually it's usually work when it's just fun it'll be something from national public radio awesome and what are you currently reading one of the books that I go back to over and over again, and I'm back to it again, is a book called The Culture Map by Aaron Meyer. I, because we have such an international world these days, and I specifically work internationally, I've, I make an effort to work internationally. And because people that we're talking to come, we, we tend to be talking to people who come from many countries, the more I know about the way they are likely to listen because of the background they've grown up with, the better. So, um, and I'm, I'm a bit of a language geek. I speak five, I'm fluent in five languages. I, uh, uh, I have worked in, I've worked in many countries, uh, mostly European. So it's English, French, Italian, German, Spanish. I love the way words fit together and the way, the way languages will tell you about a culture. When I read Aaron Meyer's The Culture Map, I went, oh, there's a reason for that. Look at this. Someone's actually studied this. Fabulous. So I find I go back to that one a lot. Amazing. And
2: who is currently inspiring you?
1: I The, the people who are really inspiring me are all those activists who are out on the street fighting for their rights. They're fighting for voting rights or um, diversity rights, being heard as women, the people who are, the whole class of people who are speaking up and agitating and saying, don't ignore me. I have a right to be heard. My whole mission in life is getting women's voices out, into the world. It's not just women, but anyone who is speaking up and say listen to me, take me seriously, treat me like I belong. All of them. Those are all the ones that inspire me.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, Elizabeth, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your out of your day to come and chat with me and share some of your wisdom. So thank you for being a guest today.
1: Thank you so much Bonnie, it's been a real honor.
0: Run It Like a Girl is hosted by Bonnie Moak, Brian Long is the producer, web design and technical assistance provided by Dan Moak, and music courtesy of the talented Brooklyn Gillichuk.